0: Hey, it's Jose Galison, and you're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can also find me in all the major audio podcatchers and Odyssey as well. As always, credit to Justin Campbell at JCAMP1521 for the intro. He does other stuff like that, so if you have a podcast out there and you want to commission him for something like that, go hit him up. Uh, today, my guest is Stefan Kinsella. Uh, normally, these episodes are like sort of behind a paywall. I'll do the stream public, and then uh, then I'll take it down to like private or, or uh, unlisted or whatever. For this one, we're this is not going be behind a paywall. So, uh, but this is a, a irregularity. So, if you are a patron, this won't be a regular thing. But it's a little bit more time sensitive, uh, considering a little bit what we're talking about uh but you know usually like i said do the live stream thing so uh the patrons will get it in that like in between the the uh, stream and when it goes public about a week or so later so if you want that it's patreon.com just no way jose 2020 the lowest level is two bucks the highest level is 20 and that's for my sponsors and my sponsors are cd McRae of the whiskey and tea podcast Jacob Winograd of the Daniel Three podcast, his love, biblical anarchy type content. Brandon Smith, uh, his Twitter's at underscore two D system. He's on YouTube and Rumble under that name, two D system. Uh, he has music on Spotify, and other streaming platforms. He has more music type stuff. So if you want to catch him, uh, check him out. Go do that um, today. The topic we'll be kind of covering. Uh, I sort of kind of set up a tentative debate with uh, with David Freeman of consequentialism versus. Uh, the ontology and uh, it seemed that maybe Stefan might be the one for it but we're going to kind of talk about that today and we'll get into it but we're also going to define a lot of the terms around that and uh, then kind of see also where Stefan's coming from with his ethical theory uh, which is what those are um, you know uh, so to kind of help you guys figure out these type of basic things because I know a lot of times people hear these stuff and they don't really actually know what the hell they mean so it'll be good to go into that uh you know if if you want to see for you know i mentioned paywall content right now it's behind the paywall i'm doing my erica's handbook content uh or series and i have the uh tommy salmons one that's in there right now that we cover volta and declare and that was really good uh be sure to check out Tire gang we have an episode going up tomorrow uh as always go check out top lobster TopLobster.com. you should see check out for 10 percent off and let's get stefan in here hey what's up stefan
1: hey man how you doing
0: good pleasure having you here uh this is the first time having you on the show, so. uh uh, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself real quick for those who don't know you, but I feel most people in this space usually already do. But uh,
1: Yeah, I'm Stefan Kinsella. I'm an attorney in Houston and a longtime libertarian uh, writer and uh, speaker, and I, um, I focus uh, – I'm an anarcho-capitalist or anarcho-libertarian and an Austrian and uh, have written a lot on rights theory, uh, libertarian legal theory, intellectual property, which is my specialty as, a, as an attorney as well.
0: Yeah, we may, depending on time, we may go into that briefly, but uh, uh, just real quick. But uh, that'll probably be at the end if we do touch on it. Uh, like I said earlier, um, I, it was, I put out a tweet a while ago saying, you know, uh, what debates would people want me to do? Because I'm looking to start to move more into that. or Not, not like it's going to be the whole channel, but start doing some content like that occasionally. And Drew Hancock made the, uh, uh, made the suggestion of consequentialism versus deontology. Uh, and obviously David Friedman being the preeminent consequentialist. And then, uh, we were looking for names and your name got mentioned multiple times. And, uh, it, it seemed to be that we kind of tentatively had set up. And then you mentioned something about how you're kind of both and we'll get into that. Uh, I guess I don't want to, you know, jump the gun right now. So I, it's still kind of tentative. I guess we got to see where you're coming from your perspective. If you would even be able to, you would feel comfortable taking the uh, deontology position in a debate as such. Um, but w- I do want to begin by starting out defining terms. Like I said earlier, these are all ethical theories. So I, I guess I'll go ahead and ask you, what, what is your perception of what consequentialism is, um, which is, like I said before, what David Freeman is most well-known for?
1: Well, I so I, I think we should confine it to libertarianism itself yes. rather than everything because it would be yeah. too broad of a topic. Um, um I think first we have to know what it means to be a libertarian. So we have to have some general agreement on definitions and our principles. Um, and those are, you know, to summarize the principles, uh, the way I summarize them, well, the way they're classically summarized is don't do harm to other people or don't commit aggression, that kind of thing. And the way I summarize it now is um, <clears throat> respect property rights, where property rights are allocated in accordance with. Basically, two or three core principles, which is the first use, the first use rule, which is homesteading or original appropriation, which means the first person who starts using an unowned resource is the presumptive owner, um, and then uh, and then you can transfer that by contract. So it's contract plus original use. Th- those are the principles that define, or that we can use to identify who the owner of a resource is. That is what property rights are, and then aggression would be using someone's resource. which is owned according to those principles uh, without their consent. So that's what aggression would be. We're against aggression, which means we're against people using people's property without their permission because we respect property rights, and we believe in a certain rule set that allocates property rights. So that's how I think – that's what I think libertarianism is, and it has many implications like you know, Mm -hmm. we have to be against the drug war and against taxation and even against the state because if you understand the nature of the state, it's basically uh, the agency of institutionalized aggression… Uh, so it's it's just inherently um, criminal. So it's not it's got nothing to do with whether anarchy is possible or whether it's a better system or how will anarchy work. Um, it's just that the state is one example of aggression, which we think is uh, violates libertarian principles, which we would say is unjust. So that's what I think libertarianism sort of is, okay? Yes. now, People are libertarians for different reasons, so that they're justifications. But also the way they the way they adhere to those principles and even the way they state them is also different. So whether you're pragmatic, consequentialist, utilitarian, natural rights, deontologist, whatever, that affects sort of both. I think it affects how you justify it, how you say you come to those beliefs. I mean some people might believe it for intuition, like they say, well, I just have an intuition. Some people might say, uh, I think it's in the Bible, so I'm just going by what God says. Um, so they believe it because someone told them to. So that's the source of their belief, but it doesn't necessarily characterize the nature of the belief that they have, like what the, what the way they conceive of those principles. <clears throat> so deontology my understanding is and i'm not a philosopher but i think deontological ethics is basically like the kantian idea that you you adhere to a rule because it's right and wrong not because of its consequences so you know i guess the idea would be um if you do a good action to go to heaven or to or, or to get some satisfaction out of it, then you're doing it for some external purpose. You should do it because you should do it, or something like that, you know. And I think that that for libertarians that collapses down into the idea of um, you're a natural rights libertarian. I think that's what most people mean by that. Natural rights means the rights that we have because of our our nature. So natural law leads to natural rights. Um human nature leads to the rights that we have that's the source of our rights according to this this perspective <clears throat> so what that means in practice is you don't have to weigh the uh, the good or evil that comes from a right which would be the consequences of it okay so the, the consequentialist idea would be the idea that you know we're in favor of libertarian rules because they lead to the greatest happiness or something like that now that's sometimes conflated with utilitarianism okay
0: yeah, like, some had my I, notes. Think, <laughs> I think some
1: people say Mises was a utilitarian, but Mises actually – because he was an Austrian, he criticized the idea of, inter, uh, of uh, the the inter – the comparability interpersonally of utility. Like It's not a measurable unit, and you can't compare it between people. So he was actually against utilitarianism in that sort of mathematical sense, but he was a consequentialist in the sense that he –… understood economics, so he said if you have property rights, then peace and prosperity will flow from that, and because I favor peace and prosperity, that's why I favor these rules. Okay, mm-hmm. that's how I think of consequentialism. Um, there is in the introduction to Randy Burnett's excellent book The Structure of Liberty, which unfortunately is not online, but you can find a pirated copy on uh, Z Library, uh, but… Um, the introduction, Randy Barnett, who's not a deep philosophical thinker, but he's a careful legal scholar and libertarian, <clears throat> he tries to distinguish between consequentialism and utilitarianism. And in his view, which makes roughly – roughly makes sense to me, um, uh, the natural rights approach, which I think he thinks informed the way the Bill of Rights was written, say, for, like the Ninth Amendment, for example. Uh, so he thinks that the founders had this, ninth, this natural rights view, which you could call deontological, I suppose… Um, but he says that uh, utilitarianism, I think you can think of it as a subset or a type of consequentialism. So even if you reject utilitarianism for the methodological reasons I mentioned earlier, you can still be a consequentialist. That is, you can say, listen, we are, we all share some common values, not all of us. Maybe there's some psychopaths and sociopaths among us who don't, but most people favor their own lives, but they also have a little bit of empathy because of the way we've evolved and we develop. developed. So that means we get some… some personal pleasure and value out of other people doing well too. So we live in society with each other. That means we value. We have empathy. We value other people to some degree. Um, And because of that, uh, we all share some common values, which is we generally prefer peace and prosperity and harmony and cooperation to violence and strife and poverty and things like that. So if you you have those values…  … … and you understand a little bit about economics and human nature and politics, then it's just a natural conclusion to say, well, the means to get to these ends is the, is the free market system or, or kind of a roughly libertarian system like private property rights and things like that. In other words, if you want peace and prosperity, then you should favor libertarian rules because it gets you that. So you could say that's consequentialist, but it's also principled or it could be principled because you could come to the conclusion that… <clears throat> Instead of having an ad hoc approach to every single political or legal issue that comes up, like you have to sit there and decide, well, what's the right rule here? Um, we have to decide how do we make everyone better off, even not in utilitarian terms, even in consequential terms. If you do it on an ad hoc basis like that, which in a way is what Coaseanism, uh, Hans sermon haba has criticized Coase for this, like this idea that it doesn't matter what the property rights are. Uh, you … people can negotiate and adjust them to get the best result. Um, we, you know, Libertarians don't believe that. I don't believe that. Um, so uh, uh, the idea of having an ad hoc approach would be suboptimal. It wouldn't give you good consequences either because an ad hoc approach means you don't have a set of principles to go by. So it's actually consequentialist or pragmatic to have principles, that is, to come up with some principles and to stick with them… And unless you have a really good reason not to. So the principled approach is what the rights approach is. And Robert Nozick called them side constraints. He said, listen, a right, if you identify that someone has a right, it means that it's a side constraint. You just cannot violate it. It's, it's or you may not violate it. Like any, it's, it's unjust to violate it, no matter what, no matter what the consequences, because you've you come up with a principle that we should follow. So I suppose in my approach, um, I think that the reason as a psychological or motivating factor or as a factual matter, the reason I and most most of us libertarians are libertarians is because we have the same kind of empathy most normal people have. We may be a little bit more autistic and OCD about it, and we're obsessed with this consistency, and we, we're inter- we interested in intellectual ideas like economics. So it gives us a little bit of insight into we, we're really consistent about it, so we don't just want peace and prosperity. We really want it. Um, we're curious about it, and we're, we're curious about the, the conditions that can give rise to that. And we realize it's 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 the private property rules, so we we really push hard to be consistent about that. So that's what the libertarian approach is. So that that ends up us in us advocating for rights. Um, so the reason we do it is in a way for factual reasons, like because we're empathetic with each other, because we have these values. Um, <clears throat> so. in a way we're consequentialist in the sense that we want liberty because it leads to good results. But also the way our minds integrate these things, good good results is also doing the right thing, so that's where the deontological part comes in. So we don't believe it's just the consequences. It's also the right way to be, the right way to be a human. Um, It's good. So. Then we, some of us search for justifications, like okay, what's an intellectual justification for this? Now, the utilitarian type or the consequentialist just says, well, common sense or economics tells us that by and large these rules produce the greatest good, so that's why we're in favor of it. This is what, but, but this uh, this ad hoc kind of approach leads to confusion on issues like even David Friedman, who is who, as I mentioned to you uh, off off channel, um, was one of my main influences that helped. steer me away from minarchism to anarchism years and years and years ago, his machinery of freedom. Uh, He's a brilliant thinker. He's, uh, I think, trained as a physicist, yet he has learned a lot about law and economics himself. Um, And – but even he, and he's one of the preeminent anarcho-capitalist thinkers, even he is not sure about the intellectual property issue, which is one of my specialties and which I've written a lot about.  … and I understand why normal people, normal libertarians are not clear about it because it's a confusing issue, although more and more people have – once they hear my arguments and others, they say, oh, yeah, I get it now. I see why intellectual property is completely incompatible with libertarian uh, principles. David Friedman can't concede that, and that's because he has this utilitarian approach where he's like, well, you never know. Maybe in some society, maybe… Patent and copyright-type laws would incentivize more creation and – I mean it's the same old argument that that economists give for today's patent and copyright law of mainstreamers. So because he doesn't have principles and he doesn't anchor his views in a principled approach to property rights that I can tell. Maybe he would disagree with that. Um, That's what – I mean even one of the world's leading anarchist thinkers is not clear about intellectual property. And to me, that's like saying, well… I think I'm against the drug war, but you never know. Maybe there's a good argument for the drug war. It's like, no, there are some clear areas for libertarians that we should we should just know. Um, <clears throat> my uh, my belief um, – I, I tend to agree with Hans-Hermann Hoppe and um, his argumentation ethics, defense of liberty. Whether you call it deontological or not, I'm not sure. It's sort of a blend of uh, – it's a principled approach that comes from a pragmatic or – Awareness of the purpose of property rights. See, property rights is a practical uh, institution that humans adhere to for a certain reason, and the reason is we human beings live in a world of scarcity, which means there are scarce resources in the world that we need to employ to to live and survive and act. And the nature of these resources is such that only one person can use these things at a time, which means that if more than one person… Wants to use that resource, which is possible when you live among other people in society. So when we live among other people in society, there are benefits, right? We get to live with other people. We get to have company. We get to have language and arts and trade and 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 social uh, company and things like that. But the danger is that these other people might want to use resources that we want to use, including our own bodies. You know, if a man wants to have sex with a woman. You know she doesn't want him to, and he does. So there's a dispute over who owns her body. You know, so libertarian property rights says she does. Um, but the point is, property rights are a response to the problem of conflict, the eternal, omnipresent fact of conflict, which flows from the fact of scarcity, which we live in. So property rights are an attempt to solve this by allocating ownership so that people can live in a conflict-free way. So would you characterize that as consequentialist? I don't know. It's certainly not utilitarian, but you could say it's consequentialist because the, we want the result of people living in a conflict-free world by identifying and spreading and respecting property rights. Now, the justification for these property rights, again, one justification is that it's the way that we can live in peace among each other and have prosperity and further the values that we all tend to share… Hoppe's argumentation ethics argues that these values at the core, at the bottom, are all are undeniably accepted by anyone engaged in argumentative discourse because argumentation is a peaceful activity. So that's a normative type of thing. It's, it's a sort of a va- evaluative stance. And so then you can build the higher-level political values and norms on top of those. That's his argument, which makes sense to me. I have a similar argument or a complementary argument called a estoppel where I, I, I argued… In in law school and after law school and some published articles uh, that the way we can defend our rights, basically the the non-aggression principle, is by recognizing that when someone someone uses force against someone, basically uses their property without their permission, then the person…  … … the natural owner, if you want to call him that, without normative implications, just the natural owner, the persons whose property he used, the, the possessor, the possessor who was ousted, let's say. If that possessor retaliates or defends with force against the outside aggressor, then that outside aggressor has no right to complain because by acting to use my resources without my permission… He's laid down the law or the rule that it's okay to use people's resources without their permission. So if I do the same back to him, his complaint would be contradictory. He'd be contradicting himself, which is which is a way of demonstrating that the only type of action that could be uh, that could be defended is a non-aggressive action. Any aggressive action can't be defended because it could be met with responsive force, which can't be objected to. Basically, so that's kind of my argument. Some people call this type of argument a transcendental argument. Some people call it a, na- a type of natural law argument. It's not the it's not the classical natural law argument. The classical natural law argument, um, and by the way, it's kind of Kantian, and you know the ethics I think goes with with Kant, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but um, the classical natural rights argument is that humans have a certain nature, and because of our nature. We need certain things, and we, we, we need to interact a certain way to get certain things, and therefore our rights stem from our nature. Um, and the criticism of that by some consequentialists and utilitarians and by – even by Hoppe is that it, it violates Hume's… … argument that you can't logically go from an is or a descriptive or a fact statement to an ought or a value or a prescriptive or a normative statement. It's just a logical error. You, you can't build a norm on an is. You can't build an yeah. ought on an is. If you do it, then you're always sneaking an is in. So what Hoppe does in his argument, he says, look, I'm not sneaking an is in. I'm pointing to the fact that, that any, any attempt to come up with a, a property norm… … which is what people do when they have a dispute, and they don't want to fight. They want to come up with a rule. They're, they're trying to come together in a discussion to, to decide what the rule is or should be. When they're doing that, that activity has normative presuppositions because it's a peaceful activity. So he's just pointing to the fact that, that all justification is necessarily argumentative justification, and argumentation is an actual practical human activity that people engage in with certain characteristics, which means they have a body. They're not hitting each other. They're not threatening each other. They're not coercing each other. Uh, there's a presupposition of peace there. So, so therefore, um, um, uh, therefore, any justification of any proposition at all can't… Propose something that contradicts those inherent presuppositions, which means you can't you can't propose a socialist ethic basically because a socialist ethic in the end boils down to I can take your stuff or I can hit you, but you can't hit me, which is called particularistic, which violates Kant's uh, universalizability principle, which is another uh, cat- uh, criteria or requirement of, of any justification or any, any argument. So that – so… Hoppe says that that argument is – you can think of that as a natural law argument rightly conceived because it does refer to man's nature, but it's it refers to a specific subset of man's nature, not just his human nature in general, like not just his acting, but his acting in argument, his arguing itself because that argumentation activity um, has normative presuppositions, whereas acting by itself doesn't because you can imagine… Uh, … Crusoe alone on his island you know, in Crusoe economics, he acts. He has goals. He might even have morals, but he, he doesn't have any interpersonal ethics, and he can't argue with anyone to justify anything. He doesn't have a need for property rules, and property rights would make no sense with Crusoe alone on his island, but action would. So his action doesn't have any normative, uh, normative connotations.
0: Uh, All right, not aside, to, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you one, off.
1: one thing, real quick, yeah, yeah. as an aside, uh, and this is in Hoppe's argumentation ethics, which is in his theory of socialism and capitalism. Um, he points out that a, a a similar argument made by Alan Gewirth and developed further by his libertarian student Roger Pilon, who's at Cato, um, is is similar to Hoppe's, but it's flawed because it tries to say that when people act, their actions are are con, con- they connote con- things they have. They have basically universal liability li- li- applies to that, but Hoppe argues, and I think he's right, it doesn't because action itself doesn't have any normative presuppositions. But but argumentation does, anyway. Go ahead, go ahead. Doan. Oh, yeah,
0: I was just gonna, I didn't, I mean, it's a little bit going off track, but it is kind of pertains to our topic a little bit. I did because argumentation ethics is still one of those things where it gets so meta that it's still a bit of a mind fuck for me, yeah. So, like. And but I think you kind of maybe made it a little bit more clear for me there because I feel like a, a lot of times when I've heard it brought up, it is people tout it as this uh bridging the is and that's where it loses me. But I think you framed it in a way to say that's not necessarily what he's saying is just if we're going to make some sort of uniform rules of you know what who does what, I mean, sure, yeah, you can have rules that you can do things and I can't, but then that doesn't why would I go by that? Like that's illogical. Like so, his
1: argument, yeah. in, a, in a way, it's it's some people. … try to criticize it by saying, well, it's obviously possible to argue with uh, your slave, mm. so uh, so argumentation ethics is, 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 is uh, disproved just by that. It's like argumentation ethics is a, an impossibility proof. What it's trying to show is that it's impossible to come up with a coherent argument in favor of socialist norms. And the reason it's impossible is because if you make that argument, you're making the argument in a peaceful context but the norms that you're arguing for are not peaceful so you're arguing for peace for 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 the violation of the peace at the same time that you're assuming the validity of peace so you're just you're arguing in a contradictory way and contradictions can't be true so all he's saying is you can't he's not even saying … really why the argument for capitalism is good. He's just saying that there is – there can be no argument for socialism, so all this left is the lack of socialism, which is capitalism. So it's, it's an impossibility proof. He, and, and by the way, what's funny is libertarians, even utilitarians, if you're a libertarian, you you believe for some reason that the libertarian ethics, the libertarian rules, the libertarian principles are right, right or good or valid, something… … for some reason. doesn't matter, even if you don't have a reason, even if it's intuition, even if it's just a hunch. Um, but if you disagree with argumentation ethics, what you're saying is Hans is wrong. Kappa is wrong. He's wrong to say that it's impossible to come up with an argument for socialism, which means you're saying that you can come up with a good argument for socialism. So you have some libertarian who thinks that socialism is not a good argument who says that it you can still have a good argument for it. It's a weird position to make, to take.
0: I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm overlooking some. I don't know if I'd frame it that way. If someone I disagree with the argumentation, it would just be a matter of, I mean, the person making the argumentation ethics uh, proof has the burden or the burden of proof, essentially. That It's not that they're saying there is a good argument for socialism. They're saying that this isn't, they're not ex- essentially accepting argumentation. No, they, they, they don't want to, fr- they,
1: I agree. They don't want to frame it this way, but I'm yeah. saying that is, that's all, yeah. That's essentially what they're doing. They, they all, what I'm saying is, they, in a way, they already agree with some of the core points, points, parts of argumentation. They already agree that there's no good argument for, for socialism.
0: Yeah,
1: Hans is just saying it's impossible to come up with one, I, you know, something like that. But anyway, I'm not trying to defend no. argumentation ethics here. I'm just trying to point out the nature of my my view of rights, um, the natural law approach. I do think is flawed because of this is-ought thing. Now, some philosophers like Roderick Long. And Rasmu, I think Rasmussen and Denoyal, some neo-Aristotelian Randian philosophers. Um, what they argue is that um, uh, natural rights are not—they don't violate the is-ought gap because you're not saying you're not saying if then you're not saying if man has this nature then he should do this, which would violate Hume's um, pr- prescription. Um, they're saying since then, which they call it an as it's a hypothetical instead of a categorical, but it's an assertoric hypothetical. In other words, the, you're saying since people have these values, they should do this, which is, not, again, doesn't violate the is-ought gap because you're building a higher-level ought or norm on a lower-level one. Um, and I think that's in a sense what Hoppe's argumentation ethics does. He's saying that since people in argumentation do advance these certain values, then any higher-level norm has to be compatible with that.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I've, I mean, I guess I wouldn't say always, I used to definitely accept more of the natural law, but the more you think about it, it's just so arbitrary, it, like it really is, you get in a weird spot, although, I mean, from the little bits I've been picking up on, uh, on Hop's work, you know, more completing it, making it more thorough, then it starts to come together what he's getting at, but, I mean, natural law just, nat- I think naturally, ironically, kind of just ends up being this arbitrary, like, how do we define this, like, It gets into a weird spot. Um, Uh, And
1: the the second criticism that Hoppe and others make of natural law, other than the is ought problem, is that human nature is very vague and diffuse because we're very adaptable creatures. So you can only get so much from our nature. And, And you can see this because, you know, in history, people, you know, look at the Catholic Church, which is sort of tied up with natural law. They would say, oh, because of man's nature, you shouldn't use a condom. I mean, you can get all kinds of crazy. Uh, ethical principles from nature because it's so vague and slippery. It doesn't really give you that much to, to, to hinge any concrete ethical rules on.
0: Uh, I do want to back up real quick since we are doing like a more of a defining terms. How do you differentiate utilitarianism and consequentialism? And uh, I, I think I kind of looked it up real quick. So there's a kind of a minor difference and I think I've been guilty of this myself where I'll accidentally kind of use them interchangeably. Yeah. Because um, uh you I mean they are pretty similar. It seems to me from the definitions I looked up quickly on Google, consequentialism is just basically a more specific aspect of utilitarianism where I, utilitarianism well,
1: I, 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 I don't I, I I would need to reread. I think yeah. Barnett had it pretty good in his introduction to structure of liberty. I, I think it's the other way around. So I think okay Consequ- I th- I could be wrong about this. I, uh, Actually, I you think, are right.
0: I did it flipped. Yeah. <laughs> I think Go
1: consequentialism on. is the idea that you evaluate uh, the 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 goodness or the validity of a rule based upon the consequences of that rule. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess in a – and utilitarianism would be we can sort of do this by formulas and math and equations because we can sum up people's actual utility like… The way we know if the, the if the outcome of a rule is good is if the sum total of utility in society is maximized, or positive, or something like that, you know, Pareto optimal or whatever. Um, and, and the funny thing is, they never. Well, what they do in practice is they, they 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 equate that to dollars, so they think in monetary terms. So everything becomes you know, balancing income, or, or I mean, maximizing income or, or wealth in dollar terms. Um. I mean there's some ethical problems with utilitarianism which for example if you could you know you could make a pretty strong argument that if you take an eye from a seeing person and give it to a blind person if you could do an operation like that you know you're impairing the vision of the seeing person but they can still see so they're hurt you know i don't know 10,000 utils yeah. but the seeing per- the blind person is infinitely benefited because now they can see so it's a, it's a, it's an overall win, you know? So you, that's yeah. a, but that's a horrendous rule.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's kind of my point. I, I, that's my critique. A lot of times when people critique utilitarianism, they use something like that and I'll go, okay, but if you do think it from a utility level, you've now set a precedent that this is an acceptable behavior and we can see how this could easily devolve. Which, which is <laughs> Well,
1: not only that, it's, it's evil in itself, but it yes. yes, sets a precedent too, which is another reason why we should live by principles rather than ad hoc. Yes. Because if you live ad hoc, then you have no principles. Um, uh, another the other problem is like you could imagine, um, okay, let's say Bill Gates has a hundred billion dollars. Um, let's say you take half of it and you distribute it to a million poor people. Now those million poor people are all a little bit richer, and Bill Gates is still hyper rich. So you could argue that society is better off. But you you don't, we don't even know that because Bill Gates might the person who's so intelligent and in, in, in the you know. Uh, uh, entrepreneurial and all this he may value his 50 billion more than the the lazy people that get it you know something like that you don't know you and this is the point that you can't sum these things up so all these assumptions are all just um academic
0: they're not real they're just excuses for policies um well i guess now to kind of dig into kind of i I guess you kind of already explained it but I'm trying to think how I'd frame this. Like if you were to be somehow magically convinced that I guess, um, h- how would I say it? That your principles don't lead to positive results. Would you be willing to betray your principles? I mean, I guess it's kind of a cl- clusterfuck cause then it's just a matter of you need to find different principles. Yeah. Let's but, let's, go back,
1: <laughs> let's go back on one thing I think we yeah. forgot to touch on or something. Oh, okay. um, so, um, cause you asked earlier or maybe before we started talking about, about this, um, Ayn Rand who influenced me a lot in my beginning phases um, you know she always pointed out that look, um, there's no she, she was good at sort of uh, trying to um, uh, spot false dichotomies you know um and one of them was this idea of the moral versus the practical and she you know she had this point that which is analogous to um, consequentialism versus deontological um, and she said you know the moral is the practical and the reason is because the purpose of morals are rules to guide us in everyday life which is a practical affair um, so what i what i believe is that f- having leading a, a virtuous and principled life and following principles of justice which is what libertarianism is tends to lead to good consequences too the, they are, you know i sometimes think of the you know the elephant you know the, the blind man's The blind guys, one guy feels the tail. One feels the trunk. One feels the the legs, and and they all – they're seeing different parts of the elephant. And I think that a consequentialist approach or a pragmatic or a practical approach is going to tend to favor the same types of rules as a more principled, deontological approach because we're all talking about the same reality. I think that they dovetail, but I think that if you have to choose, you go with the principle because you have to live a principled life. We have to have principles to go by. Does't mean we can't have exceptions or ways of treating people that violate those principles. So like people will say, well, um, what if in a given case you need to trespass against someone's property to save an infant or you know something like that um, Or a stupider example well, you know if a kid's running into the street, if you grab him, save him from getting hit by the bus, that's a bad example because I think that's not even aggression. that's you have implied consent there. Or even a stranger, you know, if you're next to a stranger on the subway and they're about to fall in and you grab them, it's not like you're taking the risk that you're committing aggression. You hope they forgive you later. I don't think you're committing aggression. There's implied consent in those cases, but sometimes you do commit aggression, like you, you trespass. You, you 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 have to break into someone's cabin to save a to save a dying baby or something like that. Uh, in those cases, I think you would still say, okay, the principle is still sound. It's still property rights are still valid. It was trespass, um, but. But maybe the law takes into account the intentions and motivations, and the penalty is very low. Or maybe, in most cases, the, the owner would forgive you, or you know, or maybe you pay a little compensation. You know. Anyway, it's not the, it's not the end of the world to have these rare cases. Um, but but the utilitarian approach, which is the legal, the law and economics approach, which I think David Friedman's a big advocate of, would say no. Uh, you actually have a right. Like the law makes an exception, which means you you actually don't have a property right. They call it necessity. In cases of necessity, so in a way, it's a different way of looking at it. Like you could say, well, in in certain extreme emergency cases or cases of necessity, the property rights just break down, and you don't have a property right. Okay, even if even in that approach, which I don't agree with, I think that the rights are I won't say absolute, but they they are based upon a principle that's still sound. Um, <clears throat> Even if that's the case, most of the time we're talking about the normal case where there's not an emergency. If we live in an emergency all the time, human life wouldn't be possible. This is another point Ayn Rand makes. Um, Anyway, so the point is I believe that the moral is the practical, and I do think that um, in a sense the the principled approach is complementary to and tends to dovetail with the more consequentialist approach. But I think that… Because of the need for having laws and rules and principles, you have to try to identify the principles and stick by them uh, whenever it, whenever possible
0: yeah uh i kind of agree I, this kind of leads me to my uh, i actually didn't have this in my notes but kind of made me think this is i guess almost peeling a layer back a little bit because i kind of have a similar thought as you as a moral is a practical essentially but i'm uh i'm very much you, know, you brought up ayn rand i'm i'm i i'm i don't know if i'd necessarily necessarily call myself a stern or right but i'm more ascribed to that type of thinking so i don't you know i don't believe in objective morality but at the same time i I see morality as a rough guideline of rules that kind of lead me to a beneficial life. And ironically, right. that ends up leading me to essentially what most people consider like a trad life or ANCAP or whatever, because I Correct. think that's what's most beneficial. So I do, and, and I kind of describe this, you know, group of principles that I use roughly as, you know, morality essentially. Uh, it's just kind of an easy guideline to go by, like rough rules. Well, but, you, uh,
1: asked, you asked earlier, you said, well, what, so what if, … I could be convinced that uh, adhering to my principles would lead to bad consequences. right? And it's hard to imagine that because, in a sense, consequences are defined partly in terms of the principles because living a virtuous life and our conception of what is good is based partly on what justice is. Um, that's part part of the answer. I I, su- I suppose if you could persuade me of that, I would… I don't know. I mean, if if I saw a dichotomy between the results of living a virtuous principled just life and human misery, I suppose I would have to give up it all and think the universe doesn't make any sense. But I think in most realistic cases what I would think is this. I would think you've identified kind of an edge case or like we say hard cases make bad law, you know, something like that and if we if we if we start throwing our principles away every time we don't like the immediately visible results that we can imagine then what you're doing is you're going by the principle that okay we've established a new rule which is we can always revise the rules which means like like you said earlier once you establish that principle who knows what's going to result from that and of course there's also there's always the problem of the seen and the unseen um Now, I don't want to be too Randian because, like, Ayn Rand believed that, say, happiness was defined as the end psychological state of, uh, like, leading a virtuous life or something like that. So, in other words, You're by definition happy, even if you're miserable. (laughs) You know, it's like it's not exactly that. I do think it's true that if you live a good, virtuous life, successful life, you're going to tend to be happy. But it's not Mm -hmm. like it's a one-to-one correlation, right? Yeah, and happiness
0: is a is a flaky term as well. So, but yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. I I suppose
1: I, I I just can't. I don't know if we can imagine a universe where where Adopting the principles designed to solve the problem that causes misery would make us more miserable. It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, that's what pro- <laughs> yeah. so uh, what makes us miserable is things that we don't like. What we don't like is conflict and strife and misery and poverty, right? Yes. Um, and that's, uh, unless we're wrong, that's partly the result of conflict and the inability to be productive we're productive when we can use resources and we're more productive when we can use them in a long-term way for long-term projects. And we can use things in long- for long-term projects when we have ownership rights. If you don't have an ownership right and you're not secure in your use of it, you're not going to have a long-term project because you don't know if you're going to be able to reap the rewards of your efforts. So it all just goes together naturally, I think. Um, I guess yeah. that would be my view on that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, what I was kind of getting at there, I was kind of curious if you find yourself as – Someone who believes in objective morality, or, or, cause I, I, I guess if I was to screen myself, describe myself, I'd say more like subjective morality. Maybe there is an ultimate objective morality, but I think it's almost like one thing we could technically never completely know. I think kind of how I see it.
1: I think if you have a strong dualism and you keep in mind the strict difference between prescriptive and descriptive statements, um, the question is almost, so the the way I think about it is this: um, it would be almost nonsensical to say it's objectively evil to do that. That that's almost a nonsensical statement because you're trying to, like, use the type of statements we make about facts, like that rock does exist. Okay, it's a factual thing in the world, um, or the law of gravity uh, it, it is the way things attract each other. You're trying to use that type of language to describe. A prescription or a norm. You're saying it's absolutely evil. I mean, I want to say as opposed to what? Like, what do you mean it's absolutely evil? All I can imagine is they have some religious view in mind. Like, there's a God who made a big decree, and the decree is so forceful because God has infinite power, and He's going to punish you if you don't listen to it. Which to me is a category mistake. Even if that's the case, it doesn't mean it's actually, it's objectively evil. It just means it's a rule that you better abide by. You know, yes. or other or you're saying, well, God is infinitely wise and good and smart, so He knows for sure what is objectively evil, and He's telling you so, just trust Him. But that's just an authority claim. You're saying, well, you know, we don't know why it's objectively yeah. evil, but God said it is, and He knows everything. So I, I think that's a category mistake. So what I think, what I think people mean when they say something is immoral, is they mean it's bad for your life. No, I do. I'm very sympathetic to most of the um, Aristotelian. … natural law type approach there. I do think that man has a certain nature and that this nature – and it's a social nature too, but our nature and our place in the world means that um, if – I mean Ayn Rand's whole ethics was if you choose to live. And she said that choice is is amoral because all morality is based upon your first choice to live. So again, that's an asetoric hypothetical. It's like if you choose to live or since you've chosen to live that then, then you're choosing to live as a man not just to survive and like like live you're trying to live as a man and that means to live according to your nature which means certain types of actions are um are more conducive to your natural flourishing right your your telos um this is where we get to the natural virtues and eudaimonia you know a tri- so i think i think the natural virtues are basically right have integrity honesty thrift you know um, loyalty, all the, all these, um, courage, whatever, um, all these virtues are basically correct. So, most people are so legalistic now; they think of morals as collapsing into ethics and collapsing into law, partly because they're legal positivists too. So they think if something is wrong, the government should make a law about it. You know, if, if it's wrong to do drugs, which you could argue it is. Then it should be illegal, you know. So they, they, and conversely, if the government says something is illegal, then it's wrong. Like it's, you know, if the government says you should pay these taxes, or if the government says you have to fight in this war, if the government says um, um, you have to hire ten percent African Americans in your work, whatever, then it's wrong to disobey the law, you know. So they, they conflate all these things, um, and so because people do that, uh, uh, shit, I forgot where I was going with this. Uh, uh, <laughs>
0: Wait, give me a second <laughs> <No>, you good <laughs> this is downfall on going on skills. Sometimes i going sometimes yeah
1: need I, I, <laughs> I need a device that can track uh,
0: uh you can't think of it we can move on.
1: <laughs> wait because they conflate what was I saying remind me. It's gonna drive I, me nuts
0: you were on a long roll and then it threw me off as soon as you asked it uh, I lost track too so <laughs> I was following along. <laughs> all
1: right. When I watch this on YouTube later, I'll add a comment. Damn it. <laughs>
0: uh, well, all right. Well, I guess uh, now uh, you gave me a lot to chew on because I got to figure. I think there is an angle here to figure out a debate proposition here because it, it does seem to me that I, I don't know. I have a lot to chew on. Maybe, maybe something along the lines of is conse- is a uh, is consequentialism a good starting point uh, for logic or something along those lines. Because uh, it seems to be, although even that's a little fucking, I don't know. All right, I'll have to think on that one. Something, maybe there, something
1: about the, the relationship between the difference between consequentialism and utilitarianism and their relationship to libertarian principles. Like, or what libertarian principles are, or where do they come from? Um, but, you know, uh, w- one example, w- one question people give me all the time about intellectual property is well, so they always have this argument, well, we agree the patent system is broken, but, you know, we need the optimal amount of patents to incentivize innovation, and they had this idea in their mind that the patent system – like without the patent system, you would have this much innovation. And with a good patent system, you'd have this much, and with two strong patent laws, you might have less. Like they, and they never know the levels. Some of them say we're too far, but they want to back it up a little. But th- their idea is that society would be worse off with no patent law. Let's forget copyright for a second because they imagine that people innovate because of patent law, and they wouldn't without patent law. And they also uh, minimize or ignore the the immense cost of the system itself, which needs to be taken into account to decide whether uh, it makes us better off on the whole. So if I actually believed that the human race would be technologically um, um, retarded… But because of the lack it would make us poorer in the long run. Because the reason that we're richer every generation is because we accumulate more technological knowledge, more recipes, basically, more 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 inventions, basically, more innovations. And the more we accumulate, the more we can use. So the, the pool, the the pool of knowledge we have keeps growing all the time. Um I mean this, this ball of resources on the earth doesn't really change that much, and w- our intelligence hasn't gotten any better, and you could argue with my – with ed- idiocracy that our intelligence is going down now. <laughs> um, but so anything that impedes the accumulation of knowledge I think harms the human race because it slows down technological progress and makes us poorer at any given point in time than we otherwise would have been. Now, that's not my primary criticism of IP law. It's a secondary or tertiary one, Um, and the reason I do it is because the counterargument is made in favor of IP law by the proponents, but they never have any empirical evidence to back this claim up. So what if one day they did? I I don't know how you could prove it, which is another reason why it's better to have principles because some problems just cannot ever in principle be proved…  … with any empirical data that's 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 definitive or conclusive because you can't compare utility and you can't do historical counterfactuals you know so people say oh well america's rich because of all the innovation we've had and we've had a patent law so they just do the correlation to causation thing you know uh, well my argument would know i think we'd be even richer without it like we've been rich despite the patent law not because of it but i can never prove that cuz i can't unwind time and show them in an the experiment so using utilitarianism as a standard is pointless anyway because you can never really prove these things with society. So the only way to govern society is with principles anyway. So we have to decide what those general principles are. Yeah,
0: uh, and that, that kind of perfectly leads into – I guess we'll kind of finish it on the IP stuff um, – but though for for those listening, if you guys have any ideas for possible propositions to use for it, you know, feel free to comment or whatever. I'll, I'll definitely have something to chew on it. Just so you guys know, uh, it's scheduled for next week. So, uh, literally a day, uh, a week from today is when I have it scheduled for. Uh, I don't remember the exact time. I'll I'll definitely promote it whenever we get to that. But
1: seven p.m. Um, um,
0: on all the time zones. Fuck me. <laughs> I think it's seven
1: p.m. Central Time, but I'm not sure.
0: I think so. That sounds right. Um, But I I did want to kind of finish up. I'd be remiss if we didn't go into IP stuff at all. I did think it was kind of funny. I didn't even think about the IP stuff in context of this because you did bring up a good point. This is a perfect example of where the uh, consequentialism kind of falls apart because it is you really do get into this. And this is a beauty of the uh, the deontological arguments is – uh, while even me, while I ultimately uh, in, in a certain sense am a consequentialist, I do I fully uh, am have no problem arguing from a deontological position because there are certain times where it's like, dude, I do not want to get bogged out down into arguing stats and and shit like that. It's a lot easier just to go to principles and be like, well, if we can kind of roughly deduce this is not okay, then we can kind of you know build from there. But anyways, my point being, I was going to use this example just kind of give you a quick like to go into IP. Uh, I don't know. Just recently I saw Dave Smith at a uh, at the the Florida LP convention. He had his whole he was doing comedy. Now let's say, for example, I recorded all of that comedy and then I uploaded it somewhere else, or you know, because I'm sure a lot of that material is stuff he was working for a future special or something. Um, now, would that be breaking the NAP? I mean, I will admit, you know, even if it doesn't break the NAP, it's a little bit shitty. But now would that be breaking the NAP? Or well, it, you know, it, it wouldn't
1: it wouldn't be shitty if he if he permitted it, so you yes, have to ma- sure. you have to make some assumptions about the yeah. context. Um, um, no, it's not a violation of the NAP at all. Uh, it's it theoretically could be um, a contract breach. You know, if they posted a sign at a private venue saying no recording is permitted, and you do it anyway, then it could be a contract breach. But even contract breach is not a violation of the NAP, in my opinion. Contract breach is just. Um, Actually, there's, I think it's impossible. This is. This gets into whole theory. Rothbard's title transfer theory of contract, if you understand that properly, there's no such thing as breach of contract because contract is not a binding promise or obligation, which is conventionally how people think of it. Um, that's how the law thinks of it, but Rothbard pointed out rightly I think. He didn't quite explore all the implications because he wasn't a lawyer, but he, he really came up with a revolutionary theory. Um, a, a contract is simply a network of… Conditional title transfers to owned things. That's all it is. Um, so when you so-called breach a contract, which means you do something the other guy didn't want you to do, then you have to pay damages for breach of contract, which means you pay him money, which just means that the contract had a subsidiary clause saying if the following condition happens, you have to pay me money. So it's just a title transfer. It's not a breach. Um So yeah, if they put a sign up saying uh, no one can record, and if you record and you leak it, then you have to pay Dave Smith $10,000, then you've contractually transferred $10,000 to him. Now, whether it's shitty or not, if you get a reputation for being a type of person who violates his contracts or his promises, then it's going to harm you in in the market. Just like in the dating market if you if you're a bad it's got nothing to do with law or property rights or contract, it's just your reputation. If you're sharing
0: nudes that's a good example <laughs> well no that
1: one that one could be contract breach too I believe yes,
0: uh, uh, as well, well. yes. Yeah. it was a good example it was a one for one you I mean if she doesn't say anything sends you nude, it's implied you probably shouldn't share. It. you're not breaking the NAP but you're kind of no one's gonna want shit to do with you if you're you're sending that <laughs> and, stuff around
1: And by the way, uh, if you uh, there is no property there's no intellectual property in jokes right now, I believe. Um, so that's why comedians have this private sort of code like you don't, you don't rip other people's jokes off. It's not really a violation of their rights, but it's, it's a type of dishonesty because you're claiming credit for something someone else did, and we have a word for that. You know, there's, there's plagiarism in society. Plagiarism, by the way, is not prohibited by IP law. That's just privately frowned upon or prevented by codes of conduct in universities and things like that. It's a contractual thing or a, or a private, private moral or private ethics thing.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess just to finish it out, what distinguishes uh, intellectual property from property? Property. Why does this not get to be counted as among property? Uh, which I mean, yeah. I already know this, but this is for I know a lot of people struggle with IP. Uh, I mean, I've crossed that bridge a while ago, but yeah, the, <laughs> the, the the best way to
1: get someone to see the problem with the institution of IP intellectual property laws uh, is to basically get a clear understanding of what property rights are, and … the property rights that libertarianism already favors. Most people are in favor of this, but so they just don't know it because they haven't uh, worded it this way. What libertarianism favors is, number one, self-ownership, which means every person is the presumptive owner of his own body. Okay. Now, for every other type of resource out there over which there could be conflict, that scarce resources, material objects, the tools of action, the means of action. <clears throat> We can identify who the owner of this resource is by asking who got it first, and who got it by contract from someone else. And there's a third principle of rectification: like if you harm someone and you owe them damages for hurting them, some of their property might transfer that way. But you can view that as a type of contractual transfer. So anyway, you can you can identify the owner owner of these pro, of these resources um, by just asking these two questions. So the question is never. is this property? In fact, the word property, to be strict and careful about it, ought to be reserved for the relationship between an actor and a resource. So you can say I have a property right in that resource, or I'm the owner of that resource. But to say that resource is my property is a little bit misleading sometimes because then the question becomes, well… Well, what if 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 a wheelbarrow is property or ideas property, the question was never is the wheelbarrow property? The question is there's a wheelbarrow and two people want to use it. How do we determine who the owner is? So libertarianism and property rights principles just answer the question who owns this this thing that people have a conflict over. That question never arises with ideas or information because information is a second type of thing that plays into human action all human action impl- is is a, is a use of your body that employs other things in the world scarce resources like tools means food wood steel land animals whatever um and it's guided by knowledge because all, all our action is you know we're not dumb beings we, if we didn't have any knowledge we wouldn't do anything <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't know the future was coming and we wouldn't seek to change it we wouldn't act at all so all action is guided or informed by knowledge, but the action itself is the use of a resource. Now the knowledge is just uh, your understanding of the way the world works. and any number of people can share that knowledge at the same time, uh, which is why we have human progress because these ideas, good ideas spread. you know uh, Someone figures out how to use a wheel or a fire or clothing or make a, a, a hut with a log a log cabin hut or whatever. Or steam engine, you know, these ideas spread and everyone's better off. So the point is when two people are using the same idea or similar ideas to guide their own action, which is the use of their own body with their own scarce resources, they're not there's no conflict. They're not in conflict with each other because unlike apples and bodies, um, an infinite number of uses can be simultaneously had of, of an idea. And this is not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing, um, and the perversity of IP law is that it – the purpose of property rights is to recognize that there is scarcity in the world, un, you could say unfortunately right, because that means life is hard, um, and to try to make the best of it by at least letting us use these resources in an unmolested way, um, in a secure way with an ownership right instead of just a mere possession right. Right? So. Property rights are a response to this unfortunate fact of the world, scarcity. It's it's an attempt to let us survive and interact with each other despite scarcity and hopefully to produce more and more things to make abundance in a world of lack of abundance. But one thing that we have is these ideas that we can dip into that have been developed over the generations and over the centuries and the millennia by humans before us that amplify the… Efficiency of our actions now, right? and um, that's one great thing. We have these free free goods in a sense that we can dip into, and they're not scarce by their nature. They're not rivalrous economically, yet IP law attempts to try to make them rivalrous to make them more like the scarce resources in the world so that they can be traded and sold and bought and be subject to incentives Mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So they're trying to impose scarcity on something that's already non-scarce.  … … when the free market is trying to make non-scarcity or abundance out of the world of scarcity. So scarcity is a bad thing. The free market overcomes that to some extent, whereas these IP laws impose scarcity on something that's already free and, and available to everyone. Um, but the fundamental reason that these – these once you understand property in this way, you understand that the way we identify the owner of a resource is by those two principles, who had it first. And who had it by contract, or if someone committed a tort, which means you know an offense against someone, a trespass, then they might owe them damages. Okay, IP law subverts this by coming up with a fourth principle. So, because all laws are enforced by physical force, that's what enforce means. That's what, and laws are always an attempt in someone by someone in the world to have control of a resource that someone else wants. You know … where there's a physical conflict or clash over it. Um, so all law is, is basically the use of force aimed at scarce resources in the world. Um, so IP law really is not a property right in ideas. In fact, because ideas are just information possessed in people's brains, it's literally impossible to own ideas because ownership, again, is the legal right to control a resource. But you can't have the legal right to control ideas. You can only have – because you can't use force against an idea. You can only apply force against a physical object that can receive force. right? So uh, it's not that I think it's wrong for there to be property rights in ideas. It's that it's impossible. Property rights are always property rights in scarce resources. The only question is what's the all- allocation rule? Like in a, in a, in a despotic tyranny, tyranny um, the rule is… Uh, the king the king owns everything that's the rule okay so there's an answer to the question who owns that land the king owns it okay um, or in slavery who owns that slave's body the master owns it that's the answer to the rule it's not libertarian but it's a rule it's the answer to the rule what intellectual property does is it says because you can imagine you can see this by imagining the way it works in in a patent or a copyright lawsuit the owner of that … right, sues in a government court. They sue someone for violating their intellectual property right, and if they win, the court – they get an order from the court backed by state force that does something to the property owned by the victim. Right, Like they take their money or they, they give an injunction saying you can't use your factory to make iPhones. So it's basically giving a control right to the IP owner over the already-owned resources of the, of the victim… which is a type of taking of their property. So it's basically – IP is just a disguised way of taking property rights. Now, in most cases, I I think the best way to characterize it is what I call a negative easement or a negative servitude. In the common law, there's a negative easement, and in the civil law or the the, the continental law in Europe, there's a negative servitude. It's the same idea, and that is where one person has a veto right over how you use your property… which is perfectly legitimate if it's contractually consented to. Just like um, if you kiss a girl, it's okay if she consents, but if she doesn't, it's it's assault <laughs> and battery. <laughs> okay? So consent is the defining thing. you know, So if the state just grants this IP holder a negative servitude over my property, that's a taking of my property because I didn't consent to that. Um, which is what IP is. IP is a negative servitude because copyright holders can can, Veto your ability to use your printing press to print a certain book, and a patent holder can use the his veto right to prevent you from using your factory to make a certain machine shaped in a certain way. Even though it's your factory, even though it's your raw materials, um, which is how they can extort licenses from you. So, they, so they say I can stop you from doing this. So, if you really want to make these iPhones, you need to pay me a hundred dollar royalty per per phone or whatever. That, that's how it works. It's extortion, right? Um, so. That's fundamentally the problem with IP and once you see that you see that basically the argument against IP is that it is simply uh, incompatible with the property rights principles that we already agree with And then you have someone like uh, a David Friedman or someone come along and they say, well I, we have to be on the fence about IP because maybe it would maybe it would create more innovation than not It's like but that was never the question. The question was only, Who owns that resource? And we already know who owns it. The owner is the person who got it first or who bought it by contract from someone else. That's the owner. That answers the question. It's over. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to come up with an exception to the property principles that we already all implicitly agree to, and their excuse is this utilitarian claim that if we make this exception and change to the property rights landscape, it will generate net…  … Wealth by generating net innovation. Okay, yeah. which means that at the very least, the burden of proof is on them. If you're going to come up with this exception to rules that we already agreed to, the common law is already established, that's time-tested and immemorial. You need to you need to come up uh, with clear and convincing evidence. Now, do you think that the founders of the country in 1789 did an empirical fucking study when they when they put that clause in there? No, they were just First of all, these guys were inventors and writers because these are the smart guys, so they they wanted their monopoly for themselves, so that's why they put it in there. They put it there because it was in England before. It was in England before because of the Statute of Anne in 1709.  … … which was copyright, and the Statute of Monopolies of 1623, which which is the, the source of, of modern patent law. And, and those laws weren't come up with because of some utilitarian analysis by David Friedman saying, oh, I think that the king should start granting monopoly privileges to his court cronies to give them the exclusive right to sell leather in this town uh, so that he can uh, give me some of the, the – cut of the monopoly price he can charge and then help me collect tax. That wasn't their argument. It was totally mercantilist and anti-competitive and unjust and anti-property rights completely. That was a source of the thing. They didn't do a fucking study. The Statute of Anne arose because, because it was a response to the aftermath of the stationer's company, which was the 100-year the guild that they put up in place after the printing press so they could control what books could be printed because they didn't want the roofs to get the wrong Bible… I mean it was all thought, control, and censorship. They didn't do a fucking empirical study. So set, go to 1789. We put it in the Constitution. They didn't do an empirical study. They didn't prove it. They didn't come up with the evidence to rebut the you – know, to rebut the strong case for property rights and to, to justify an exception. What about in the 230 years since? Have they? Nope, 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 nope. All they did was – you asked about intellectual property. These things were called monopoly privileges… Privilege grants, and in this, in the 1800s, the free market economists started waking up and saying, "Why the hell do we have these copyright and patent uh, rights? Why, why are we doing this? It's sort of contrary to the free market and free trade and competition." And so, the industries that had grown up around them were, were entrenched. Now they they depended upon these laws. Um, the publishing industry, for example, so they they started defending these rights. They said, "No, they're they're not." Uh, they said they're not monopoly privilege grants by the government they're uh, they're property rights they called them property rights because people had a positive connotation or association with property and then everyone said how can they be a property right they they're not tangible the board, the borders are vague they're arbitrary they expire at a certain after after 28 years what kind of property right expires in 14 years or 28 years and, and so then the defenders said, well, they're a special type of property. right? They're intellectual property. So these guys came up with the term intellectual property as a way of defending it and trying to make it seem like a regular type of property. And then they say things like Richard Epstein and these other guys nowadays say horrible things like, well, it has – Adam Mossoff, this neo-objectivist – this objectivist law professor at George Mason. They'll say… Um, oh well, the structure of intellectual property law is just like real property rights, like property rights in material objects. After all, you can have a contract about it, and you can lease it, and you can um, and you can um, give it to your heirs, and and uh, and all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, yeah, but you know, we had slavery too. We had property rights in human beings, and guess what? They could be mortgaged. They could be sold. They could be loaned. You could abuse it, which means kill it. You know, uh, just because the law allows you to treat something unnaturally—that's not natural property—like property is not. I mean, hell, people think of their social security payments as a property right because they're used to getting the stream of income. Hey, it's just—it's just like a—it's just like a, it's just like a uh, uh, an annuity. You can get a private annuity from from an insurance company, right? So, hey, it's just like an annuity; it's a property right. This is just bullshit. This is not an argument. It, they're making an analogy between it's legal, pure legal positivism, right? Which which is disappointing to see libertarians do. Um, so that's the answer. The answer is that nothing is property because the right the right way to say is people have property rights in resources determined in accordance with the first use principle and contract law. That's it. Um, and um. um so intellectual property is not property because nothing is property. Intellectual property is a perversion of property rights because it basically amounts to the assignment of unconsented-to negative negative easements over people's already existing property, which is a taking of their property. And as a as a as a predictable consequence, it impedes innovation. It makes us poorer, like all uh, aggression and interference with property rights does, as Rothbard showed in his uh, utility and welfare economics paper.
0: Yeah, I, uh, the biggest takeaway I got from that spiel from the IP is it was actually ended up being an interesting uh, uh, good argument for the deontological position. Because essentially, even if you were to make some sort of statistical, uh, very convincing argument for how supposedly these IP laws are actually beneficial or blah, 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 it's still a matter of like, okay, well, you found you have possibly found one example that betrays yeah. are a good set of rules, and obviously there's going to be room for error because it's like, well, these could affect other arenas aside from just the IP. But anyways, I digress. And not only that, it's going to yeah. metastasize
1: because we started out with 14-year copyright terms, and now it's 100, like 150 years. Mm-hmm. So even if like you favor the original copyright, it's like, yeah, but it's not going to stay that way. And I debated Richard Epstein recently at the Soho Forum on this topic, and he's like a libertarian-ish Law and economics, David Friedman-type guy, so he, he has this ad hoc approach to everything, and he kind of conceded that he thinks that the modern copyrights term, let's say, of 100-plus years is insane. He concedes this. The original term was, say, 14 years, extendable once to 28, so it was, it was 15, 20 years. Okay, um, He says that would be better. And I asked him. I said, well, given that the reality is apparently once you have a copyright system with a small term, it's going to blow up into a huge term. So like a 14-year copyright term is not feasible. So if you had to choose between a 170-year copyright term, which we have now and which you just conceded is horrible, and zero copyright because you can't have your 14-year term that you prefer, what would you choose? Like if you you had to choose… And he says I would take the 170-year term. Why? He, he just admitted that it's horrible. You know, so it's, 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 and, and lots of people say things like, well, I kind of agree that a 17-year patent term for everything makes no sense. It should be tailored to the industry like pharmaceuticals should have a term this long, and software should only be three years. So, so what does that mean? You have to have a panel of experts who sits there and makes this judgment about… Um, Okay, this patent it deserves this much of a term, so oh, that's not subject to corruption or you know, oh, th- <laughs> there's there's no danger of error there, right? I mean, you know what would happen there? It'd be subject to bribes and corruption and, and the special interest lobbying and payoffs, and it, they want to tweak a system that can't be tweaked, and mm. it can't be tweaked for two reasons. It, there's there's no interest in tweaking it. The, they it, it exist because of the support of the the industries that are entrenched. I, I actually believe that intellectual property is one of the worst things in the world, and it's done primarily because of the United States because of our hegemonic position um, and our ability to foist our insane version of it onto the rest of the world. And we do that for basically three industries, um, the music industry, Hollywood… That's all copyright, and the pharmaceutical industry for 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 patents, the people so that really th- need it. <laughs> those three big American industries are basically parasitically benefiting off the entire rest of the world, harming American consumers, harming every other country, um, using American Congress to export but with our imperialistic efforts our i p systems to the- I mean people say things like, "Oh, Kinsella, you're a communist." You believe in IP, idea of communism. It's like, you're so fucking stupid. The Soviet Union, North Korea has IP law right now. The Soviet Union had IP law. They all have IP law. I mean, what are you talking about? Um, uh, So, um, and the sad thing is, you know, we have these two or three or quasi so called libertarian congressmen, you know, Massey and Amash and Rand Paul. They're all they're all pro IP, it's, it's incredible. Uh, no yeah. principles among them, you know. Hey, it's in the goddamn
0: constitution. Oh, that's so, so was slavery. Congrats, yeah. IP is a mind fuck, even for libertarians. That was probably honestly, it's weird. It's one of those last things that, even for me, that it was probably one of the last things that I was able to let go of. It's just a weird conundrum in the head. But the point I was getting at before is that, like, even if you could make a you know, a goddamn bulletproof fucking uh consequentialist argument in in favor of ip it'd be like okay cool well i mean from a deontological perspective like all right we have this like guiding through line of how i should live my life that guides me well in 999 out of 1000 spots and now you want me to disregard it for the one We need to have
1: a yeah. I was gonna say yeah. We so that's another reason to have a principled approach to things. Um, uh, I was gonna say I think uh, the two biggest opponents of IP from the other side, the more empirical side, is uh, the economists uh, MacKellie Boldrin and David Levine, who wrote a book called Against Intellectual Monopoly in two thousand and eight or nine. And you know they're not libertarians really, and they started their book. Trying to come up with with empirical arguments in favor of IP, but they finally realized the evidence goes the other way around. So to their credit, they they conceded it, and they they basically they're not as much of a hardcore abolitionist as me. Like they'll say, well, there might be some free rider problems in the pharmaceutical industry, but the better way to solve that would be a taxpayer, you know, government funded. But and, and I think a couple times they said, well, there might be a case in a very narrow type of industry like a narrow type of pharmaceutical or biomedical device. Maybe a patent would would actually do a good thing there. They said, but it's impossible to limit it to that, so therefore it'd be better to have a blanket rule saying, look, no patents. So even they can see like, we should just have no patents because even in the couple cases you can come up with… It's not worth it because it's going to metastasize, and 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 there's no way to limit it to
0: that. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, uh, we're at a good spot. Um, I was trying to keep you under an hour, but you just kept spitting fire. Uh, yeah, my Polo fault. Per, Polo Peritus, per- can you hold church on a monthly basis here? I'm all for that. I actually genuinely enjoyed a lot of this uh, of it. I know I didn't say much, but I got a lot of it. Actually, surprisingly, uh, What's made that? Who, who said far. that? Someone. Uh, we have some... Polo Peritus. Uh, oh, are we live? Uh, we, yeah, we're live. Yeah, we've been. Oh, live. okay. <laughs> which to that there were a lot of people talking shit online like they were going to come in and talk shit and no one showed up so uh i mean i I know the stuff that you've caused fire with and i have some probably disagreements with you on some some of that stuff but it was funny all the people talk shit and and no one showed up (laughs) you know i told everyone if you want to talk shit pay me money in the super chat and i'll let you and no one did it so uh just you know that's a, a a good little anecdote there but yeah, if you want to go ahead and drop your plugs, this has genuinely been great. I really enjoyed it, even though I didn't say much, but I, I got a lot of it. So drop my plug.
1: Yeah.
0: Huh. <laughs> Whatever plugs you got these <laughs> days. I don't know. I, don't I like know you sl- don't have a podcast I don't like the rest of
1: Yeah, I, I just, uh, if you want to catch up with my rantings, um, IP rantings at c4sif.org and my, um, I put all my podcasts. Well, I'll put all my interviews like this on my own podcast feed, which rarely, rarely has an original episode. It's always something like this. It's on com. All right.
0: Well, I, I like I said, I genuinely appreciate it. If you liked my show, you can find me on No Way Jose. Uh, on YouTube, on all, all the major auto packages, Odyssey as well. At twenty twenty no way, Jose is me on Twitter. If you, that's where I'm most active, if you want to give me money, Patreon.com it's just no way Jose twenty twenty. Like, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. And if you guys have any ideas for uh, the possible debate resolution between uh, Stefan and um, and uh, God David Friedman, that you know, comment them. You hit me up on Twitter or whatever. I'm genuinely interested in your idea. I think I have a good idea, and it kind of clicked better because when you said you kind of agree with both, I was like. Well, shit, now I need to hear him out so he's – hear what he's saying. But I think there's something there. I think there's an angle we can work with. Uh, You know, there's a – but I get where you're coming from for sure. But I really appreciate your time. With that, we are out.